All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. I'm just going to pull back to verse 1. Um, I'd like to read Yahweh instead of the Lord. Uh, so we'll pick up uh, verse uh, 1 again. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of Yahweh, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to, to Yahweh, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Yahweh said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa, or Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested Yahweh by saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we hear the, the message this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we could sing and exalt your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you that we could read from the scriptures. We thank you that we could confess our need for forgiveness of sin and know that you are a faithful God that forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And now, Father, I pray that your spirit would be over in and through the word that is preached, the message that is communicated, and that you would use it for your glory and certainly for our sanctification. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning's title of the message is taken right out of the passage that we just read, and it's entitled, is the Lord or is Yahweh among us or not? And to get us thinking in a sense of our own understanding of this and how it applies in our own lives, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been a part of a group project where you had that person? That person who doesn't carry their weight. Something important comes up in the project, and everyone has already volunteered, and everyone is kind of quietly sitting there waiting for that person to volunteer, to step up and take their portion of the Lord, of the load, and they're all but invisible. It's like they believe they're not really there, or nothing is expected of them. We've all been a part of those situations. We all know what it feels like, and we're, today we're going to find the Israelites sorely 
misperceiving and even accusing God of being that person. And sadly, what we're going to see that we also, in our own lives, suffer from that delusion. We also find ourselves, maybe not explicitly, but in our minds and our heart, accusing God of some wrongdoing of the situation we're going through. He's at fault. He shouldn't allow whatever it is we are facing. And our takeaway, as you look at the bulletin on the back, you see the outline that we're moving through, and you'll notice that, once again, I've, I've put in some bullet points in there beyond that they're really subcategories beyond just the three majors because I want you to be able to follow along without being distracted by writing too much. But the takeaway today is the real problem is that so much of our time is spent living by sight and not by faith. And some of you may be thinking, what does he mean? What is the contrast? And what is the context of that contrast of sight and faith? And I hope that's able to hook you and hold your attention long enough to find out what that looks like. What's the difference between living by sight and living by faith? So we turn to our first point, our first verse in, in Exodus 17, and the point deals with a real-life need. The Israelites are facing a real-life need. It's not misunderstood. It's not fake. It's real. So let's, let's start there and see what they face. Then all the congregations of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages. The idea of that word stages, some, some translations also will include the word they marched. The reason they, they put that word in there is because journeyed by stages, the stages is an organized manner, almost a military-like fashion. So you have an understanding that it is coordinated. It is ordered. It is not haphazard. They, they journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, although the people sin in this wilderness, that's not what the meaning is. So we just know it's an, a place named the wilderness of sin. No context to what we understand sin. According to the command or the instruction, I think it's more personal in nature to use that word. It can be interpreted any, either way. Of Yahweh, and they camped at Rephidim. We don't know the, we, or you might say that we are uncertain of the name of that or the meaning behind that name. And we know that names of places oftentimes have significance. We're going to see two names in today's passage that we are told about. We just don't know why it is named Rephidim. But we continue on. And, the, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. So we have a real-life crisis. We know as human beings, no water, big wilderness area. Wilderness means, in its, in its most wooden sense, uh, aridness. So you've got a great big area of, of land that has no water, and they know it. And so they've got a real problem because no water means death to all of us. They understand that. They have an important need that is time-sensitive, 
And because it's time sensitive, you only live so long without water, it moves up in priority. It takes the top priority. I almost envision if they were saying, how much longer, like kids, how much longer? When are we there? When are we there? That one falls way to the bottom when all of a sudden there's no water. <laughs> we got problems here. We need water. This is the, their, their difficulty that they're facing. Sometimes we refer to our difficulties that are time sensitive, that get moved to the front as our daily mini crisis. Didn't see it on the map, wasn't planned, something happened, it's important, it's time sensitive, it just moves to the top of, the, of our stack of what we have to address, and we refer to it as our little mini crisis. I gotta take care of this, don't you understand? This is a top priority. Well, the, ref the Bible doesn't use the word crisis, which is interesting. It uses words like trial. And we're even told in James that we should expect these trials regularly in our lives. Do you hear the differentiation in use in words? Crisis implies everything else takes top priority. Don't get in my way. I got to take care of this. Trial says this is something that is challenging, but it's not necessarily controlling of who I am and how I interact with others. Others aren't an obstacle to me. I'm trying to figure my way through this, maintaining my dependence upon God and the character that I'm trying to demonstrate as a person being sanctified by God. These trials are an opportunity to more personally experience, as we'll see in the context of today, the presence of God. So what does that mean? It means if you're one that when you see a crisis, you go off the handle and everybody becomes an obstacle to you, just stay out of my way and they get short responses from you, then in the midst of your trying to do what you think is right, you actually are missing out on the presence of God because you've come to this place where you are in control. You need to take the action. People need to understand that this change of character is necessary to get it done. It's okay. It's justified. And thus, your personal experience with the presence of God is eliminated. And it's eliminated by our own choices. We will either respond to the trial in our flesh, that is our, our weaknesses, our sinfulness, or at least our propensity towards sin, and try and resolve it on our own, or we will depend upon the presence, and the presence implies power. You don't get the presence of God, and like somehow it trails behind and there's no power of God. So when we hear presence, we need to understand, much like what we saw, heard today in our judges' uh, passage that we used to uh, bring us into a state of adoration, we were, in, we were invoking God's presence in, in our assembly today as well. The idea in that judge's passage was that w when God went forth, when the earth experienced his presence, the earth, even the mountains, quaked. Those huge mountains that represent such might you can't move a mountain. It's secure. It's in place. There's safety in a mountain. 
it blocks the wind, the storm, whatever it is. No, those mountains quake in the presence of God. That's where we need to focus on this. Presence assumes power of God in our lives. Our God is not a weak God. Let me say this. I have never met anybody, Christian or not Christian, who is not actively involved in a trial. If I were to sit down and interview everyone in this congregation this morning, if I asked enough questions or the right questions or you started to feel comfortable enough, like Pastor Nick isn't going to pry too far or gosh, he's understanding or whatever it is that lowers your inhibition of, of sharing this, we all experience trials, whether they're the immediate or it's a longer trial that God has us working through. Everyone, even non-Christians. And why you say is that? It's because we live in a sin-cursed world. We have a real enemy in the devil, the Satan, the accuser, who wants to use our sin to bring about destruction. And we ourselves are also sinners. We have a propensity to it. We are always in the midst of either a trial of our own doing by our own sinfulness or the world we live in, which is a sin-cursed world, and those around us or, or by our enemy, the devil, we are always in a trial. And the reason I, I want to hammer this point home is if you don't get that, you'll never call it a trial. You'll always be prone to use the word crisis because it says, I got to deal with this differently than as if it was a trial. You have to excuse me because this has to be dealt with in this manner. So I want to pose some ideas in your mind. I can't help but, as I pose these, people go, yep, yep, yep. And you start to realize, not only are you dealing with a trial, each of us have multiple trials. We are working through under the dependence of our God. Is it possible that you are facing a difficult relation, or relationship, excuse me, or maybe a difficult job with all the difficulties that are demanding of you at the job? Maybe a difficult role as a father, as a mother, as a child, as a student, as a roommate, or a relative. Maybe it's a difficult choice. Maybe it's simply difficult news that you were presented with, or a difficult decision, or maybe a difficult expectation by others. I know who I am, but I have the pressures of my family, my loved ones, or whoever it is that's able to influence me, always pressuring me, always having expectations that are outside of God's will. Can you, do you realize that of the seven I just listed, you probably had at least two of those? And a lot of us had a lot more than two. Trials are constantly going on. We need to realize that they are so we can handle them differently. Are you facing your trials by sight? And I'm going to help you with this one. In other words, placing the greatest priority on the problem. If you're walking by sight, you're placing the greatest priority on the problem. Or are you facing your trial through faith, placing the greatest priority on the God who can get you through the problem, 
who's going to sanctify you through the problem, who's going to change you from what you were before the problem to something that images him more clearly as he takes you through the problem. If you miss that, if you, if you walk by sight, you will miss the opportunity to be sanctified, to be changed by your God and experience your God shaping you as a parent lovingly shapes their child. Why do we sometimes walk by sight? Well, our next point is we have a short memory. I was teasing somebody last night at, at uh, the men's group that I'd, I'd like to do a word search, and I'd, actually I was hoping to do it before I got to preach this morning, on the how many times the Lord causes, tells us, remember, 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 remember. We have a God that knows how he wired us. We have a God that understands the fall and our inability to hold on to uh, the many things that has been taught. He knows that we have hindrances in our lives that are constantly pulling out our attention. So he's constantly reminding us to remember. And we are creatures of short memory. And I can't help but think that God purposely uses that to depend upon him. My short memory, and it gets shorter as I grow older, causes me to depend more and more on God. And I need to reread. I need to restudy. I need to be around other Christians that can remind me when I'm in that difficult spot. And I have forgotten that these are the truths that you have forgotten, possibly, Nick. Well, let's read Exodus 17, 2 through 4, and see if we can see this short memory at action by, by way of the Israelites. Therefore, the people quarreled. Interesting thing about that word quarreled. It's a context of a legal accusation of wrong. And it's played out in this context, not in a courtroom, at least not a formal structure as, as, as this gymnasium, but it's played out in the courtroom of the Israelites' hearts. We all know that courtroom. We all enter that courtroom we all make assessments and judgments in that courtroom of our situation, of others, of our God. So we continue on. So therefore the people quarreled. They're, they're bringing a legal accusation with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? In other words, why do you find fault with me? Why do you judge me as being guilty? Like, I'm in the one in control here. And then he makes it very clear. He moves the implicit to the explicit when he states, Why do you test Yahweh, the God of the people of Israel? It's interesting. The word test means to, to there, has the context of putting to test the nature of something. They want to put to test the nature of their God. How arrogant. Think about this. The last time they were at, at water, God let them know that he was testing them in the bitter waters of uh, Meribah. Mara. Sorry, that sounded wrong to me, and it was wrong. The bitter waters of Mara. He said he was putting them to the test that when they came there, would they trust him to be able to change these waters from undrinkable to drinkable waters? And they failed in their grumbling. 
And yet he showed mercy and he changed it anyway. This God has shown them that he has, he has actually explicitly told them, I will test you because I want to see your heart. I want to, it's not because he doesn't know, it's because he wants them to know their own hearts. When you face a trial, here's an opportunity for you to look inside and examine your heart. How am I responding to this trial? Now the Israelites, not, we're not at Marah, we're here. We're now at this place that has no water. And they think they have the right to test God. I'm thinking, really? God, the one who just saved you? God, the one that, that used the water in the Egyptian, in the exodus from the Egyptians to punish the Egyptians, to do away with their enemy that was wanting to, to keep them in bondage? And then he moves them tomorrow and shows, I can make the, the bitter water uh, drinkable. Now we're here without any water. Haven't you got a clue yet that God uses water to bring about that which he desires, whether it's punishment, whether it's a testing of obedience, or whether it's water that can produce life itself. It can, can sustain life would probably be the more accurate way of saying it. They want God to prove his faithfulness in his presence and in the power of that presence. It's appalling and it's shocking, and it's something we do. And it stings when we think about, how could I do that? When we slow down what we were thinking in our minds and our hearts and pause to think, I'm no different than the Israelites. Let's continue in verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and they, they grumbled. The idea, uh, that word, is that it's ongoing complaining by way of remarks, and that murmuring, that, that, the noises that aren't really words, that, that say sometimes even more than the words in the, disgusting, in the disgust of the tone of the murmur. And they grumbled against Moses and said, why? Well, let me share something with you. In the Hebrew, the word isn't actually why. It can be interpreted this. More woodenly, the word says this, and I I wish the translators into English would have left it in this wooden format instead of smoothing it out because there's an important word that got lost when they used only one word, why. In the, in the wooden sense, what they, he, the, the Israelites say is, for what is this? You almost get the sense that they're looking around going, we got nothing here. We got all these people, no water. For what is this? And this is the focus here, because we're going to see Moses respond to that. In other words, for what reason have you brought us out here? This, and, and to have us experience this injustice. We don't deserve not to have water. What are you doing to us? I perceive you are bringing evil into my life, and I don't deserve it, is what they are saying. It's what our grumbling says. When we grumble at whatever it is that we are experiencing in our trial or trials in the moment. He says, for what is this? In other words, why have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock 
with thirst? Now think about this. They're scared, as I just indicated, that they're going to get wiped out. Everything that can breathe, everything that needs water is going to be wiped out. What is bringing this about? This, this response of theirs? This anger of theirs? This desire for wrath upon Moses, God's representative? Fear. Fear. Think of the last time you demonstrated anger. Now I'm going to go off of the premises that I think is a biblical premise. The 99% of the time, the anger that we human beings express is unrighteous anger. So I got a 99% chance that the last time you expressed anger, it was unrighteous. And if it wasn't unrighteous immediately, I can count in milliseconds how, unright- how quickly it became unrighteous. So if you can give me that, and you look into your own heart and realize that I was more concerned about me than I was about God's kingdom and my anger, then let us suppose that this is accurate. I have never, I have never seen anger being the root sin. Anger always has a motivating sin behind it. Here we see fear as the motivating sin. It can be other sins, but I want you to hear, when that person gets angry at you, I would say most often, and I've got to be careful with the percentages, but most often, the sin behind the anger has something to do with fear, whether they can't control something, whether they're going to be cheated out of something, whether they feel like this is not, they're not deserving of, of whatever the outcome. When you see anger, I want you to understand that there's potentially, whether it's in your heart or your loved one's heart who is directing anger at you, that there's a good chance of fear being the motivating factor behind it. And you might be able to help that person, including yourself, understand your sinfulness at its core and maybe stop it in the future before the anger is expressed. Here we see them acting out of fear. They're manifesting not just anger, wrath. And we know that because, listen to this, Moses cried out to to Yahweh. Moses didn't interpret this. Moses didn't assess this and say, that's kind of a bad situation I'm in. No, he, he assessed it and said, oh, God, I'm crying out to you. You have got to do something. Listen to what he says. Moses cried out to Yahweh saying, What shall I do? <clears throat> what shall I do to this people? Hear the flip? They think injustice is the problem. God has brought, they have perceived that God has brought evil into their situation, that he brought them to a place where they are going to die of, of inability to get, gain water. And Moses says, what am I going to do with this people? The people are the problem. And if I can say it this way, I'm going to make a big U-turn as I look out at you and and head back to me. In other words, Moses is, uh, is saying something that we all know. Oftentimes, we're the biggest problem that we're facing. It's not the situation. It's our response to the situation. He ends with this. Moses says, a little more. And implied in there, the word isn't in the Hebrew, but it implied is a little more time and they will stone me. They have brought a wrong on a legal understanding in a legal court system of the heart. 
They've, ex- they've, they've taken that case to their own hearts. They've agreed upon it as a people. And now they're going to execute the punishment, the justice they see for what is happening. And Moses knows it. In a little time, the wrath I'm going to feel is their execution of me. They're going to stone me. That's a scary place to be. The real problem is twofold. One, it's the people's failure to remember the promises of God. When you're facing a trial and you have that, that heart where you, uh, where you just feel like, no, this is too big, God. This is, this is overwhelming. I don't know what to do. I, I'm not sure how to handle this. Whatever it is, remember the promises of God. In this situation, they should have remembered from Exodus 3, 16 to 17. Yahweh says this, Go, and he's talking to Moses, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, got some history here of being faithful through his promises with all those patriarchs, that God, me, has appeared to, has appeared to me, and this is now Moses saying, saying, I have observed you and what you have done, and, and what has been done to you in Egypt. This is God saying, I've, I've seen you. You're not forgotten. I know in my perfect timing what I'm going to do. It's all part of my plan. And then he says in verse 17, and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. I want to ask you a question, and this is a question that's going to sting because I, I know it because I asked myself, and the answer I got wasn't good. But I want to ask it to you. How ignorant are we as a people in actually knowing the many promises of God that he has Revealed in his written word. In fact, I would suggest that it isn't our failure to remember so much. It's our failure to even know the promises of God. And so when we don't know the promises, we don't know what God is going to do, and so we have to rely on ourselves. God's not in the picture. It's going to be me and my ability to influence the situation, or I'm in trouble. And the clock is ticking. There's an immediacy. I've just got to do what I've got to do, and you've got to deal with it. And it's wrong. But there's a second component. I mentioned it's twofold. The second component is our failure to walk by faith. And when I say walk by faith, the, the, the Bible is simply meaning walking by, trusting in, the promises of God, in the power and the presence of God, you might say in this context. No, the Israelites are choosing. They are choosing. They are choosing. It's a choice. I hear people all the time, including myself, say, I can't. Yes, you can. It's time for you to yield to God. You can if you will yield to the presence and power of God. They are choosing to walk by sight and not by faith. And this is in direct opposition to how we are called in the New Testament to walk. 
It's also how they was called in the Old Testament, but I'm referencing the New Testament now. In 2 Corinthians 5, 5 through 9, let me l- allow you to listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 5 through 9. It says this. This is Paul talking to the church at Corinth, or the Corinthians. It could be the Phoenicians, as it relates to us here in Phoenix. He says this, He who has prepared us for this very thing, and he's talking about life after death. He's talking about death and, and the life that, that comes after that, is God. They're worried about their well-being. Sound like Israelites? Sound like us as a people of God? He who prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit. What Spirit? Spirit of Christ. We know that spirit to be the person of the Trinity, the third person, the Holy Spirit. As a guarantee, oh, wow, God has given us his presence as a matter of a guarantee of his promises. Oh, yeah. Let's continue on. So we are always of good courage. Can you say that in the midst of your trial? I can't say that. I fall. I need a wife, I need a friend, I need another Christian to remind me that my grumbling is saying that there is no God. I'm failing to understand the promises of my God. I'm failing to walk by faith, I'm walking by sight, I'm walking by my own strength. We know that while, and continuing on in this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, 5 through 9, we know that while we are at home in the body, that is alive, we are away from the Lord. What does that mean, away from the Lord? That means we're out of the immediate physical presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning in heaven in physical presence, but, he, but the person of the Holy Spirit is indwelling us as a guarantee. So let's continue on and see if we can understand this. For we walk by faith, not by sight. I didn't make this stuff up. This comes right out of the Bible. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I'd rather be in the presence of Jesus Christ, the immediate physical presence of the God-man, the man who took on flesh and, and became one of us so that he could pay the price for our sins, so he could pay that and demonstrate that he is the one who makes it possible because of his perfect obedience for us to have a Savior that could pay for it. I want to be in his presence you have loved ones, you have you going through a challenge in your life. We have people in here facing life and death because of the illnesses God have put, th- put before them, ordained Ill- illnesses. And yet, in talking to these men, we prayed for them earlier, they look forward to the day that they are in the physical presence of their Lord and Savior. That drives them through their trial. A trial that they know has a time frame that has been shortened by this illness. Praise be to God that he has given us the person of the indwelling spirit as our guarantee. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord so that whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him, to please God. But not only is this walking by sight in opposition to how we are called to live, but it also has some results in our lives. Let me walk you through this. These are the ones that uh, uh, you will see. Some of these, I believe, in your uh, bulletin. And the first one is this. This is what results when we walk by sight and not by faith. 
we walk with a proud heart that wants to test God, like we have the authority. Like we, how arrogant can that be? Isaiah 29, 16 says this, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing... That, that, excuse me, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, like somehow I'm above the maker. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. My God doesn't understand. He wouldn't have given me this trial if he really understood what this trial means to me in my life and how it's wrecking me. It's completely upside down. What right do we have to to tell the Creator, our God, that He's wrong? That what He has ordained in our life is not right. In fact, it's perceived evil, my perceived evil. Point number two, another result, an unfortunate result, but a true result is this, a continual discontented attitude of grumbling. Our grumbling should tell us more about the situation than the situation. Listen to yourself and how you're responding. If you're grumbling, it's telling you more about your situation than your situation is telling. It's telling you I'm walking by sight and not by faith. Number three, a self-righteous desire to be, notice how it's worded there, the judge, capital, all capitals with, ju- with judge over others, wrongly judging and condemning. Interesting. If, you, if you've gotten close enough to me to, to, for me to engage you in, in some type of very personal conversation, those who ha- I have had the pleasure of leading and shepherding through counseling will hear the stories of how I used to be a very angry man and I still struggle with anger. Why? Because I was prideful. I was self-righteous. I had in my mind the right to judge you. In my heart of hearts, I, I opened up, I threw the gavel down and said, court's in session. What you've done to me is wrong and is deserving of my wrath, of my tongue, of my attitude, whatever it was. I am the judge and you will pay for wronging it's, it's disgusting. When we do that, when we believe we are the judge, what we do is we image the Satan, the accuser, the adversary of mankind. He's the accuser of saints. We image the Satan more clearly in our anger than we image God himself, our maker. We are image bearers of God. We seek to punish other saints, not just the people out in the world that we say, hey, would you go a little bit faster? You're in my highway. Would you move over a few lanes? Because I'm coming through and I'm Mr. Important. Not only do we look down on those people, but the people we know as brothers and sisters in Christ, oh, we accuse them. They may not ever hear it, but court has been held in my heart. We act like demigods, little mini-gods, little pharaohs. Human beings that think they're God and they're nothing. I hope that disgusts you as much as it disgusts me. And I, 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 I look to God to say, please, 
Let, let that disgust leave a mark on my heart that I don't do this again. But it's even better than that. And what I mean by that is God not only uses that from a negative sense and, and, and does what Proverbs talks about, him teaching us to hate our sin, but he does one better. And this is our third point. The ever-present rock. That ever-present rock is Jesus Christ himself. Look at Exodus 17, 5 through 7. And we're going to see the faithful, powerful presence of God in this. Exodus 17, 5 through 7. Then Yahweh said to Moses, pass before the ideas in front of, 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 of. So you've got the idea that everyone can see. It's, it's not slip out. It's make it public. Make sure everyone sees it. Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Why? Because he needs faithful eyewitnesses, the leaders to come back. They trust, they put in, into leadership these people. They trust them. So he takes, he says, take the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile. Remember he struck the Nile and the Nile became blood. And remember he, the, he, uh, he waved his staff, the staff of God over the Nile and out came the frogs. This staff represents the presence, the power, and the authority of God. You take that with you because I want something tangible that the people can see in your possession. You're holding on to it. They need to see and be reminded of that which I've already demonstrated to them in their lives. It's a shame I, we, don't, we as elders don't walk around with, with staffs to remind, and I say that facetiously, to remind the people of what God has already done in your lives to demonstrate his faithfulness in your life, and yet we forget. God says, take this tangible object and use it as a reminder of that my presence is real. You have my authority to do that which I command you to do. And he continues on. And go. Behold, I. I is emphasized in the Hebrew. He wants his people to know this. Behold, I will stand before you or stand in front of the rock at Horeb. Fascinating. We don't know if the elders could see Christ Jesus in whatever form, a theophany of some sort, a Christophany, some, some likeness of, of a human being. But he says, I'm going to stand before you. I'm going to show you which rock to strike. There's a connection that Paul picks up, Scripture picks up. Him in doing so, whether Christ is standing on the rock or Christ is standing next to the rock or, or it's right in front of him, we don't know exactly. But the point is, what, what, what Scripture picks up on is this theme of Christ is the rock because of what comes out of the rock, because of the stability of the rock, the essence of an unmovable, unchanging, faithful Savior. All of this is connected to the, what's going on here. And it's interesting. He says, I will stand before you, or in other words, in front of you, there on the rock at Horeb. I love that he used Horeb. Why? Because you, it hopefully made you go, Horeb? What's Horeb again? What mountain is that again? Horeb is Mount Sinai, the mountain he's taking them to. He's going to ta have Moses take the elders out before him to go to Mount Horeb where 
the angel of the Lord first met Moses in a burning bush. The connections are overwhelming. Just like I met you there, Moses, I am going to now show my presence in the form of power of something happening with this rock. And so these elders can see and they will know that my presence that was there from the beginning is there now. There's this connection. Everything in between. These are bookends that he's trying to, to point out to them. And he says, and you will strike the rock and water will come out of it. He could have used the Hebrew word bow. He could have used the word halak. He could have used the word shalach. But he doesn't. He uses it one verb that we know over and over again because we keep seeing it in Exodus. And it's the verb yatzah. And it means exit. It's where we get the understanding of the exodus that he is performing. Listen to this. You shall strike the rock and water will exit out from it. It will come out of it. It Water will make an exodus. He's using that to remind them, even in the words he's choosing, I just performed the miracle of the water by allowing you to pass through it and the enemy to be destroyed by it. I am the God of the exodus, whether it's the exodus out of Egypt or the exodus of water. Water coming out of a rock. We have a, a, a way of saying, we have a saying that says this, you can't get blood from a turnip. Well, that exact principle is what is being dealt with here. You can't get wa water from a rock because the essence is such that rock is so uh, dense, there, it doesn't hold water. It, water doesn't pass through it if it stays and it's, it's not cracked or something of that, in that nature. That's the picture here. You can't get water from a rock unless you are the creator of the rock and deem it so. That's the uniqueness of our God. He continues on, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. So they did eyewitness it. And they were eyewitnesses to it. And he says in verse 7, he named the place Massa, which by the way means a, a, a place of testing, and Meribah, a place of quarreling. And then he continues on, and he's going to actually explain that. Because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested Yahweh, saying, is Yahweh among us or not? Prove yourself, God. So I'm going to pose the challenge to you, church. You must decide. You must decide today. Is Yahweh among us or not? Is the angel of Yahweh, as referred to in chapter 3, and we know and we talk through, that's the person of Jesus Christ, is he among us? Is he the one who died in your place to save you of your sins? Is he the one that has secured living water for you that you will never thirst, you will know eternal life. Is he the one who is now ruling from heaven, or is this just a bunch of a random chaos brought about by a sinful people, and he's really not controlling the chessboard? He's off taking a break somewhere. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in this spiral downward that we've been in since 2019, that in the likes of my life, I've never seen such an exponential downward spin of a culture. Is he the one who promised his disciples as he ascended to heaven 
Lo, or behold, I will be with you always. Not sometimes. I will be with you always. Until when, Jesus? Until the end of the age. The end of the age is the end of the church age, where he, he himself comes back to judge, separate out those that are sinners, and to rule on this earth for eternity. You have to make the decision. Is the presence of Christ something real, or is it just something that the Bible talks about and it's not really a real thing? This is where we stand. We must believe it, and I'll leave you with this. Whatever you answer to that question today, right now, will affect every tomorrow in your future and how you perceive good versus evil. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do realize the real problem is that so much of our time is spent living by sight and not by faith. We thank you for the clarity of that understanding. We thank you for the conviction as we see ourselves, our own sinfulness, in this study today of the Israelites' response. Please change us. We cry out to you like Moses cried out. We beg you to intervene, not on, on behalf of, of the fact that we might die as the context is, as, as spoken of today, but rather that we might deny you as our Lord and Savior. We might accuse you of something evil when, in truth, we know that everything that we have that is good, even our sanctification process, is good and comes from your hand. Remind us of that. Change us in the midst of that. Make us image bearers that exclusively image our Creator, our God, our Lord and Savior, our King. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.